want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. I'm fascinated by the recent explosion of healthcare subscription companies. If you're a regular listener, you probably knew that, as recent guests have included Midi Health's Joanna Strober, Whoops, Ben Foster, and Matthew Mendrink of 30 Madison. We've even explored telehealth for pets on the show with Fuzzy's Zubin Bete. Today's guest, Dan Zavarotny, co-founder and COO of NutriSense, is focused on helping subscribers optimize metabolic health through a solution that combines hardware, software, and professional advice. In our conversation, Dan shares the story of how he found product market fit, the challenge of building retention around a checkup type of offering, and how to manage a business when third parties, in his case, hardware manufacturers, provide a significant part of the value prop. Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here, Robbie. So I wanted to start with just a little bit of background on what NutriSense is. Can you explain what the offering is? Sure. So we're a health optimization company. And what we really do is we take three components here and we give you a piece of hardware, which is called Continuous Glucose Monitor. We add software analytics on top of that, which really helps you combine all the data together. And then third piece, we give you a health professional. And the idea here is that we're able to understand proactively what is going to be unhealthy for you, whether it's your stress, your sleep, your exercise, whether it's nutrition. And we're able to proactively advise you on how to improve. Therefore, you're able to either prevent disease from happening in the first place or even take your athletic performance to the next level. So people in our platform range from type 2 diabetics to pre-diabetics to Olympic athletes and everyone in between. Okay, so it's a piece of hardware that you actually put on your body and put it on the back of my arm. And you said you have software analytics and then you have advisory services or expert advice with the goal of optimizing health. So I think you answered the question, but what would you say is the forever promise you make to your subscribers? Something along the lines of, if you stay with us, we promise that we will continue to evolve our offering to what? Sure. So this is where it gets a little bit more nuanced for us. Most companies, if you think about Netflix, they're here to entertain you, to bring you entertainment. For us, we group people into different categories based on their goals. So we use a lot of the jobs to be done framework. So if someone comes in and their goal is to improve their pre-diabetes, for example, their goal is to reduce their glucose specifically so they can then live a healthier life and make sure they don't get diabetes in the first place. So prevention. Other folks, on the other hand, have a different promise. And that is, hey, I would like to improve my nutrition so I can set the new record or I can run that marathon. And so the promise is really on what is it they're trying to accomplish. The one for our promise we tell people is this. We will work with you on your goal. However, health is the one thing that is forever. It really is. If you think about us as human beings, we have hobbies. Sometimes we get into fish and we have to buy tanks. Sometimes we get into skiing. Sometimes we get into like hiking. Health is the one thing that will just never go away. And so the idea for us, we promise you, is that we will educate you to make sure you own your health, yourself, for a much longer time. And so you're not a recipient of information like you are at a doctor's office where you go, oh, instead, you understand what they're saying and you can drive your own health 
forward. Got it. That's so interesting. So, well, I mean, if I were going to paraphrase, while your members have a lot of different goals themselves, some are trying to optimize their health for for major competitions, while others are trying to manage a chronic health condition like diabetes, with all of them, you're basically promising them the information to be in control of their health journey. Yeah. And many times it's the self-education that is personalized. So it's really the educational component that's really critical here. So in this situation, it's what is this specifically for you that's good and bad? And we've seen this now across genders. We've seen across age. We've seen across ethnicities that, for example, food, the exact same food has a different response. An example that I always like to use is coffee. We see this extremely across everyone. There's people who respond to coffee and they have a negative response. Some people have actually a positive response and some people have a neutral response. And that's the irony. We always read these articles like people say, coffee is incredible for you, cures cancer. Next year, coffee is really bad for you, causes cancer. Next year, and you don't know why. You're like, wait, how is this happening? And the reason for this is that all this research is done on averages. We as human beings are so different. We're not average. That's number one. And number two is, there's a huge, huge difference between women and men. And historically, almost all research has been done on men, and we generalize. But we hormonally are completely different. And so it's important to segregate and see the data on the individual level, not on the mass level. Yeah, a really interesting point. One of my guests last season, Joanna Strober from MIDI, her company helps with chronic health issues relating to menopause and kind of midlife. And that's a huge, I think she has a real bee in her bonnet about that. Most of the research doesn't really look at gender differences when there's so obviously different issues, especially, as you said, relating to hormones. So really interesting. Today, your business, if I subscribe to your service, I get some kind of a monitor, which might be, you know, a couple of different brands. You don't make them, but- We don't make the hardware. I would get an Abbott Labs or was it Dexcom? Or I guess the two most popular ones that I know about. You put that on, you have an app, you have a person that you can talk to, a nutritionist. I've got that right, right? Exactly. That's perfect. Yep. Yep. And your vision for the future, you have a bigger vision. Do you want to share kind of where you see that going and also where you see healthcare going more generally? Sure. So there's a couple of pieces that I want to highlight here. Number one is I think at least 80 to 85% doctor visits don't need to happen. And the COVID kind of exacerbated this a little bit. People now do digital doctors, right, instead of in person. So you save a ton of time by having to go to the doctor's point, wait in line for two hours, they see you for two seconds, they say, come back later, or we'll email you your results. Why does that interaction even need to happen in the first place? But the second piece is this. The doctor, unfortunately, doesn't remember all your data from you, right? And there's a big gap between this annual physical. So the idea is, how do we reduce that gap of, I saw you once a year, and I ask you the same questions, I forget about you existing. And the idea here is you accumulate your data in a centralized repository. So then when a doctor or someone else that's need to talk to you, they can see a global view of all the information displayed. So when you go to a doctor and let's say they say you have high cholesterol, you're pre-diabetic, whatever it is, the first response is, oh, are you eating healthy? Are you exercising? And that shouldn't be that. It should be, I've noticed you're eating this way, maybe, and you have a negative response to this kind of food. You should adjust this way. So those are recommendations be specific to you. That's not currently happening because it's simply impossible for the doctor to do that. So our ambition is to create enough data stream over a longer time period where we can see patterns and recognize those patterns. If you think about it, if you go to the same doctor for 20 years, all that's happening is they're actually creating trends in your life. But the trends are 12 months apart and a lot can happen in 12 months versus our goal is to create trends nonstop daily. 
a lot can happen in 12 months. And also, I mean, what I've found personally is when they take my vitals or they take my blood sample, I mean, I know from wearing a glucose monitor that if last night was a big night of my daughter's in town and she made baked goods and I was going to just enjoy that and not worry about my glucose for one night, that next morning, my readings are going to be very different than what they would have been a week before or a week after. But suddenly there's like all these red flags because it's the one data point. So what I hear you saying is that today the data is mostly for me. And if I choose to, I can show it to my doctor if they're interested. In the future, there could be a world where that data is, I think what you're saying is maybe sent directly into Epic or whatever your sort of data tracking system is. Our ambition is that this data, as long as you accept and you offer us to have your other health professionals, your entire health professional ecosystem should have access to data. Whether it's your primary care physician, whether it's your physical therapist, whether it's your mental therapist, they all should see this data. Because by tracking things over time, we start seeing these trends and we're able to finalize information. So even your annual physicals that you currently do your doctor, that should be uploaded so we could trend that out. And we start correlating things, right? Because correlations was really drives change and that creates personalization. Without personalization, most advice advice is worthless. It's the same thing when somebody tells, if you look at the business world, they tell you, oh, if you follow these steps, you become a billionaire. But what's your starting line? And what's your context? If you live somewhere where you may not have had luck to have education, your step one is learn how to do math and read. There's basics that are required. And so the advice that's currently given out is generic advice across the whole spectrum. But we are not one size fits all. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I think for a lot of membership-oriented businesses, part of what's valuable is trending over time and evolving of the relationship over time, evolution. So what I need three years in might be way more nuanced than if my husband signs up tomorrow and has never really been interested in his own biomarkers or his own feedback. I want to change gears a little bit. Something when I wrote my books on membership, I divided into three parts, launch, scale, lead. Launch being you have this kind of idea, how do you make it a reality? Often it's off in the corner, or it's being bootstrapped. Scale, hey, we have something that works. Let's pour gas on it. Let's get funding. Let's get teams. Let's make it central to the business. And the last phase is, okay, this has been working for a while, but it's a little long in the tooth and it's not working as well as it used to. And in fact, if we were starting from scratch today, this is not what we would have built. Sure. I'd love to go all the way back to your launch phase. And people always talk about like, how do you get your first 50 or 100 paying <laughs> subscribers? Yeah. What was your approach to that? It's often very challenging. I always tell that my co-founder was really effective of being very focused. And so he actually told me when we first started, he said, okay, there's only two jobs, build and sell. Which one are you doing? And my background is a finance strategy. So I said, sure, I'll actually do some budgeting and some finance planning. And he's like, we don't need that. You want to build or sell? <laughs> and I said, I don't know how to sell. And he's like, all right, well, you got to build. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, write code. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. He's like, well, you got to pick one or the other. And I decided to pick sell. And I think my first step was actually, while he was writing code, I just started Googling how to market on the internet. And hundreds of things came up. And I just like put in a little Excel file, like Facebook ads, Google ads, Instagram ads, SEO, influencer, billboards, just make a list. I've never taken a marketing class in my life prior to this. And then I went through, I'm like, all right. How much does this cost? And I wrote a column, how much it costs. And I went to my co-founder and said, okay, how much, what's my budget? And he said, zero. And I was like, oh, this makes it easier. And I get to cut out like 90%. And so we didn't have that many things left. But from there, I basically had like influencers. I had bloggers. I had reviewers, things like that, that doesn't cost anything besides my time. And from there, it was basically just reaching out to hundreds and hundreds of people and trying to understand will they respond. And what happened is I think the first, out of the first 200 people I reached out, I got one person to agree to work with us. 
one. But then after they worked with us, it worked. We got some, I think we got like six sales. Then I said, okay, look at that person excited. Why do they sign up and work with us? Right, we're paying them zero at this point in time. And I looked at all the conversations and what made them different from someone else. And I realized there was a little bit of context that was unique to them. And so I adjusted the entire sales pitch to reach out again to another 200 people. What was the context? What did you notice? I noticed that that person was following a ketogenic diet specifically. Ah, okay. Right? Before I was just reaching out to anyone. I'm like, oh, a yoga instructor, that's popular. Or a soul cycle instructor or a bodybuilder, just anyone in the health and wellness space. And then I realized that folks in ketogenic has been actually tracking their glucose for a long time. Yeah. So ketogenic, can you just explain for the audience if they don't know what that is, what a ketogenic diet is and how people manage a ketogenic diet? Because I think that's important. So folks that follow the ketogenic diet, they believe is that by restricting carbs to a certain extent and eating healthy fats and healthy proteins, you're able to improve your efficiency of your metabolism, as well as their belief is that ketones is what drives your ability to focus. So you brains much more folks all the time. So the idea here is that a lot of the carbs we eat are empty carbs. So by following the ketogenic diet, you're able to basically live a healthier life and your glucose stays within a certain tight range, usually between 70 to 140. And by doing that, you delete basically out of your life the swings, ups and downs. You have that big lunch and you have a crash afterwards. By following the ketogenic diet, you never have these swings. And these swings are usually coming from you ate too many carbs, you have this big sugar high, and then afterwards, you have this crash. And it's this your body self-regulating by moving around insulin and absorbing the glucose in your system. Because basically, glucose can only sit in three places, which is your liver, your muscles, or your bloodstream. Yeah. So one thing that I think I remember, so I tried, I'm always interested in new diets and new health things. And so I read about it. One of the things about the people that follow a ketogenic diet is that they want to be in what they call a state of ketosis. Yes. Which is incredibly rigid. Mm -hmm. Like either you're in or you're out and you can't, mess around and pretend. Yep. And so when I think of people who follow a ketogenic diet compared to like somebody who is vegan or plant forward or whatever, it's very rigid and they have to like, I don't know, check their blood or do something. So to me, it makes total sense, although I wouldn't have thought of it, that somebody who follows a ketogenic diet would be more interested in the data they would get from a glucose monitor than somebody who might benefit more. Yep. But isn't already habituated to really wanting to understand the impact of how and when and what they eat affects how their body processes food. Yeah. Again, prior to this, I didn't really follow nutrition guidelines, right? It's specifically when we started this. And I realized there's a, somebody recently told me that America is a big country, over 350 million Americans right now. So there's the, the joke they said is there's always at least 1 million people that will like what you have to give them, provide for them, as long as it's good service, number one. And a second piece that's critical also is, are you able to find them and articulate them effectively? What is it that you're providing service for? As long as you're able to accomplish those two goals, then you can do that. And so once I discovered this ketogenic diet, I basically said, okay, let me find every Facebook group, every Reddit thread and start reaching out to folks there because now I know who these people are. And the goal a lot of times was just get them on the phone call and just explain to them, even understand what their struggles are. I think that was very critical. I think the part that sometimes people misunderstand is that you can't sell dog food to someone who cares about cats and vice versa. And so here you have to understand what is it, why are they having this problem? Why do they even care about tracking? And once you understand that, you understand their pain points, you are able to more effectively speak to them. And I think that was the way to get the first customers for us. So you focused your messaging on if you're on a ketogenic diet, 
Nutrisense has a great solution to help you better understand what's going on inside your body in a scientific, measurable way, combined with expertise to help you optimize. Interestingly enough, when I found that the ketogenic diet was a very popular thing, I started getting a phone call to these customers that we started getting signed up. I actually didn't pitch people afterwards on ketogenic diet. I found out, I asked them, why do you even track glucose? What is bothering you about the current standard? And what I found out was that people fingerprint themselves already 10, 20 times a day. That is painful. They finger prick themselves 10 to 20 times a day. To understand the glucose all the time. That's really annoying. Second thing is, they don't know what their glucose is when they're sleeping because they're sleeping. They can't figure it for themselves. Number three is they have notepads everywhere because they're tracking their glucose, writing it down. They're tracking what they're eating. So they have like five different things. They're tracking their workouts. They have like four or five different apps, notepads written all over the place. So my pitch switched. I didn't say, hey, you following keto drink diet. It was, hey, are you ever interested in, in learning where your glucose is while you're sleeping? They say, yes, I am. Okay, let's chat. Oh, do you have like 15 places you track all your health and wellness information? I do. Is that annoying for you? It is. Oh, we should chat. You're a marketing savant. <laughs> I don't know. Just, I think it's a lot of luck, a lot of luck, a lot of reading, right? <laughs> I think it's a lot of grit, honestly. Yeah. And then from there, it just uh, expanded. And I think, so I went from no marketing to within two weeks, I think we had about $8,000 in revenue. What were you charging then? Just so $8,000? We were charging about $200 a month at that point in time. $200 a month. Yep. And then the second month, we're about seventeen, dollars $18,000. And the next month, about 30000 It was really just trying to address people's pain points. Uh, what is it that's holding them back? And why are they currently doing this? If you take a step back at the holistic picture, almost every single thing that's invented, every product that exists, it's not like people are inventing something completely brand new. It's an improvement of what existed before or solving the problem a little better, hopefully a lot better. But really, everything's always an improvement of what existed prior to this. And so that's what we were trying to accomplish, understand how do we solve these problems more effectively and faster. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we were talking two sides of any successful subscription business, right? Acquisition and retention. So tell me what you learned. Bring me along on your journey. What did you learn about what drives churn and what is the difference between people who churn out and people who stay? Yep. How you figured that out? So in the early days, when we first started, remember, I'm a relatively healthy guy. I came from healthcare consulting. And my co-founder was also a tech entrepreneur. My other co-founder is a health professional. And so we were all relatively healthy. And so we decided, you know, people always say, build for yourself. Build for something you want to solve a problem for. And so we started building for ourselves. One of the things we quickly realized that people like ourselves come in for a month, they learn everything, they go, thanks a lot. I'll see you later. And within a month, we're like, wait a minute, these might not be our main customers, right? Like their problem is not hard enough to solve. And so the question becomes, how do you solve a problem that's actually more complicated? And we started segmenting people in different groups. We have these groups called you know, Learning Larry or Weight Loss Wendy, and it helps us really visualize what are these people trying to accomplish. And based on their goals, it's much easier to understand what is their churn going to be like and what's the retention going to be like. And they have different needs. They have very different needs, and they have different approaches. A lot of times, the biohacker guy that we're talking about, they come in, they just want to absorb everything. They're willing to dive in for seven hours a day for a month and then be done. The average person doesn't have the time or the bandwidth to do that. They want to learn little by little, 15, 20 minutes a day over a certain time frame, right? And that takes a very different approach. A lot of it is actually motivation-based instead of here's all this data, go, go, go. So we basically said, okay, let's, at this point in time, we keep accepting the biohackers and all those folks, but we have an acceptable churn, assuming they'll stay maybe a month or two, maybe three, but it's okay if they leave. However, these other folks who have much longer goals, those are people we want to double down on. And that was very critical for us because it helped us understand truly how to expand our retention. So 
I often say that retention is everybody's job, right? Because I believe that when you focus on retention, you notice, oh, this is what I can do from a post-transaction messaging perspective, which is where most people go with retention. Like, hey, don't leave us. We have more. Check us out. Don't go. Maybe we'll give you a better deal. (laughs) I really think retention starts when you decide who you're going to target. Who are you going to acquire? What is the message you're going to give them when you're trying to get them to make the initial transaction? How do you onboard them? And what are the features and benefits that you invest in? So, so I believe that a good product has acquisition benefits. That's the things that get someone to sign up. Hey, we track everything so you don't have to keep it in five places. Hey, you put this on one time, one tiny prick, and then you don't have to prick yourself ever again. But then what are the retention benefits? What are the engagement benefits? How do you keep habits? So that becomes the job of what? Marketing, sales, product, operations. Customer success. Customer success, exactly. So once you've figured out that, we have these different segments. What changed? Did you change product? Did you change messaging? Did you change targeting? What changed? Some things changed immediately. Some things are still in the changing phase right now. So one of the things we changed immediately is we said, we are comfortable with losing certain people. Historically, whenever something goes wrong, you want to save every single customer. And the part that we struggled for a long time, and now we got a handle on is it is okay to lose certain types of customers. Acceptable churn. This is so important. It is. And sometimes it's a lot of satisfaction of customer comes not just from, is your product good enough, but it's what expectation they have of your product. If someone comes in, for example, and they say, I want to lose 100 pounds in one month, that is very unlikely to happen. And you're not going to make that happen for them in one month. And you have to reset the expectation until we can get there in maybe 18 months or 24 months, not one month. And their expectations know I need this now. And sometimes it is actually comfortable and you just be comfortable letting people go. And oftentimes we actually tell people, here's your money back. Sorry, we can't help you. Because... If you don't do that and a month goes by, now they're angry. They didn't lose their 100 pounds that they're aiming for. And they actually detracted people from your platform. And they now have to say negative things about yourself, about your company, as well as we spend a lot of time appeasing them. And so the cost of both internal as well as external simply doesn't bring the value of the $250 they provided to us. And so a lot of times we always we call it canceling your customer or firing your customer. And we do this quite often. And we have like escalation process where we say like, hey, this is not the right customer. Just please give them their money back. And it's worth it for us to do that. Yeah, this is, I think, such an important idea. And I hope people listening take this to heart that just because somebody is paying you and that's helping you maybe hit this month or this quarter's revenue target does not mean that they are good for business. And being willing to cancel your customer, fire your customer, give them their money back, You avoid having a detractor, you know, sort of in the NPS world of promoters and detractors. And it also good for the focus of the business because you know who you're targeting and you know what they look like and your profiles are consistent. You have a limited number of them. So this is such a misunderstood approach, but so important. I think it's hard because to be totally frank, you can only do it once you hit a certain scale of revenue. When you're on and you have 16 customers, you don't want to lose a single one of them because you're so early. Everyone, you got to make them happy. And the problem is you still don't know who's the right customer at that early stages. It's only when you have enough data, when you're able to analyze to truly understand who your true customers are. Because the the part that is important here is one, product's not fully built out yet. So you're kind of guessing. Are people leaving because your product's not ready or are they never going to be your customers? They just did a great job marketing. That's number one. But number two is, are they the biggest customer segment in the future? Because you might have got lucky. And let's say we're talking about an extreme example. I'm not saying it's true, but imagine there's only 100 ketogenic people in the world and I got all of them sign up and I start building the product for ketogenic folks. That might not be my actual business. 
And so you need volume and scale. You need to get to a couple hundred, a thousand, two thousand, and look at what those people look like. That's number one. But also look at the, if you say, okay, maybe, as I mentioned, weight loss, Wendy's the person I want to focus on. What do those people look like in the real world? Are there a lot of them? Or is it only ones I have? How do they look like as part of the population? And another part is it is critical. Who else is serving that individual? Because we talked about CAC to LTV being one of the most critical parts. CAC to LTV, yep. CAC to LTV is incredibly important. That's cost of acquisition to lifetime value. Exactly. And when we say lifetime value, I want to make sure we're clear. It's post-gross margin. A lot of people sometimes will use LTV as revenue driver only. Like, I generate $100, but you might have, like, we have dietitians on there. We have our hardware on there. We need to subtract that out. So we look at a post-gross margin LTV. That's very critical. I see a lot of early founders making that mistake and they're like, oh, I generate X $100 and my CAC's only 30 and three to one. And we're like, actually, it's like 0.5 to one when you start actually subtracting all the costs of goods sold. But that part's really critical, I think, in my mind. So if we back into it, we have to always look at that comparison. And I think the ratio that I've always used is three to one is the ideal place to be. Yep. And if you're aiming for that, you may actually say, okay, if the demographic is on the world. Three to one, just to make sure people are following along at home. Three to one means that you have three times post-GM LTV compared to the cost of acquiring that customer. Exactly. Yep. And I will be frank, times it might get worse. At times it might get better. As you guys probably saw, like for example, Facebook is one of the biggest drivers for a lot of people. After the iOS 14 changes, that had dramatic impact because targeting was much harder. So we did see those shifts. And it's okay if you're on a growth phase to say, okay, maybe for the next six months, we're two to one. And so a lot of marketers are actually, what they'll do is they'll do in these phases where they'll say growth phase, optimization phase, growth phase, optimization phase. So you may sometimes fall to like two to one, one and a half to one, which is like, but you have to be grown at that stage. And then you say, okay, now we grew, we acquired a good amount of market. Let's slow down. Let's optimize. Let's get back to three to one or even three and a half to one or four to one. Yeah. Because unfortunately, marketing is not a switch and you, at scale it has to go in waves. So you'll see people, we're doing three months of growth, three months of optimization, three months of growth. And you sometimes see the cycles of two to one and then four to one, two to one, four to one. The goal here is to make sure you don't stay two to one too long, <laughs> right? Because that gets real tricky. Yeah. I talked about sort of launch, scale, and then lead. In the scaling phase, sometimes it's a race. You have competition and you want to form the habits with your ideal members, with your weight loss Wendy's and your ketogenic Carl's and whoever else. I don't know if that's one of your people. I just made that up. (laughs) And so you say like, for example, Netflix, for a long time, it was free for families. They didn't really track how many different devices you were streaming concurrently. And I believe that a big part of the reason that they did that was to grow faster, yep. to form habits, to give people an opportunity for trial to understand how streaming worked. Because in the beginning, it was hard for people to get their heads around. Now, it's kind of like my sister used to work in a frozen yogurt store and people would come in and ask to taste vanilla. And she's like, it tastes like vanilla. Like at this point, people know what Netflix tastes like and either you want it or you don't want it, but <laughs> yeah. you don't need to get a free trial from your cousin's password anymore. So I think it's really important to think about three to one is a good benchmark, but sometimes when growth is more important, you might dial down. And when you're more in an optimizing harvesting phase, you might slow down and go for a higher target. And you know what I'll tell you? One of the biggest lessons I've had from this whole experience is that whenever I see a competitor come to the market, I'll say, oh my God, more competitors. Oh my God. I had such fear of what are they doing? And one thing that clicked for me was that when you were creating a new market that didn't exist before, you guys in some ways are lifting all tides. You guys are all working together in some way because you're changing mindset, like you mentioned Netflix, of streaming. And I've seen this. If you think about grocery delivery, for a long time, grocery delivery is not a thing. 
And all of a sudden, you had all these grocery delivery companies show up and your people, I would always think like, oh my God, they're competing with each other. Yes, they are. But in many ways, they're competing with the grocery store because people change the mindset of like, hey, now you could say, do you want Blue Apron, a Home Chef, whatever it is you want? Before it was, do I go to the store or do I order online? And that was a shift. You're building the category together. You're sort of frenemies, right? You're... Exactly. It really is. There's a lot of shared. And I imagine that one of the areas where these other companies are probably supports are when it comes to negotiations with the hardware providers, because that's an interesting challenge if the hardware is made by somebody else. Yep. They could copy you. They could stop selling to you. And then the other one that's interesting is physicians themselves, because a lot of physicians would say you shouldn't subscribe to all these sort of crazy new digital health things. If you have a problem, come see me. This is serious business. And so you're probably also navigating that of building adoption and acceptance and collaboration. I mean, your vision was there's a world where the doctors are really happy to have us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like anything else. You think about the human nature as humans hate change. We hate change. I mean, it's something as simple as we started as company. We didn't have a lot of processes, a lot of backups. But now that we're getting a little bigger, something as simple as like, oh, we need a two-person approval process for reimbursements. And it sounds silly, but like startup with four people, you're not used to it. And now people all of a sudden are like, I don't want to do this. And so if you are a doctor, you went to medical school, you have all these bills you paid for you know, loans, and all of a sudden you have this job and you've been doing it for 20 years, and somebody comes in, hey, let's do it a different way. And it's not going to be a little different. It's going to be radically different. Your first change is question is why. I have a good life. I make good money. Why do I want to change? So there's always a little bit of hesitation. And that's completely okay. It depends what kind of doctor. Some doctors said, like, we've had a lot of people say, like, this doesn't work. There's no reason for this. But then they see the results of their patients that work for this. And they go, this doesn't work, but somehow you improved over their H1A dramatically, or their fasting glucose dramatically improved. And then they're like, wait, it doesn't work, but it kind of does work because you did something right. And then without taking any medication, I think it's important to take a step back and realize, like, what is our healthcare system really built on? And it's built on expertise on managing disease, prescribing effective medicine, and oftentimes surgery. We're the best in the world. People fly for surgeries to us all the time for the whole world. However, we're not really focused on prevention. Prevention's not something we care about. Quite the contrary, you know, we talked about, you said you made a joke about me being a marketer, but we as Americans are probably the best marketers in the world. And that's how we're so effective marketing about all the food that you can buy that's delicious, that's beyond believe unhealthy for you. The other day, I bought some mayo and it said, a mayo with olive oil. And that's supposed to be healthy. And then there's a tiny asterisk. And I look at it and it says, actually mixed with soybean oil, canola oil, and grapeseed oil. And I was like, every one of those are terrible. And I dug more into it. It was actually 5% olive oil. Those other oils that I described are beyond belief unhealthy for you. <laughs> and so the irony is that because we're so good at marketing, we're marketing people things that are bad for them. And so they're doing the vice versa. And that's what's driving us getting unhealthy. And by just educating the public about what's healthy, it improves society as a whole. And here's, a, you know, a lot of times people talk about, what well, shouldn't this be B2B versus direct consumer? And the interesting part about this, B2B is a very different organization. It's about sales-led a lot of times. It's like, did you get that five-year contract? Once you get the five-year contract, you as a company are now, you're stuck in there and that's good. And you don't need to worry about making your product better. You don't need outcomes. That's a five-year problem later, right? And so five years down the line, we'll figure it out as the renewal comes to it. But right now, it's about selling the HR person to get them to use this as a corporate wellness program, for example, or an insurance company to partner with you. That's number one. But number two is this, by getting more and more people to work with us, direct consumer, they're choosing to work with us. This gets the attention of B2B. This gets the attention of insurance companies. And it makes them say like, wait a minute, you told me this isn't possible, but I see now with thousands and thousands of people this is happening. Why are you not doing this? So it's forcing the B2B companies to actually improve the product, which they historically didn't want to do. They don't want to spend money on R&D. And it's forcing the whole industry as a standard to improve. 
Yeah, it is interesting that you can use the consumer piece to actually serve as a proof point for a much larger scale B2B initiative. And I've seen lots of companies do that. that you have to have the leverage to get the bigger, slower movers involved. It's like the kindling. The consumers can be, I mean, you could have a great business, you know, who knows in five years we could be talking, you could be a pure consumer play and, or you could say, you know what, we've actually gone through employers and insurers and medical systems and all the consumer stuff was really kindling for this much bigger fire. I mean, I think it's important to remember how the generational idea of wealth is changing in our country. Historically, it's been, do I have a two-car garage? Do I have a nice backyard? Do I have a nice car? Do I have a little boat maybe for the weekend? And now it's, do I have a gym membership to core power yoga? Do I work out Orange Stair every weekend? How's my nutrition? Is it healthy? Am I, what are my biomarkers? The idea of health is the new wealth. People want to live a healthy life for a long time. They don't want to sit in a wheelchair at 70 with their grandkids. They want to go play soccer with their kids when they're 70 or football. They want to toss the ball. And that's a been dramatic change we see now generationally. You see it right now where the generation between 16 to 25 they show that they, on average, only drink 40% of them drink alcohol, first generation above them drink it at 66%. So they're consuming alcohol. So now all of a sudden, all these bars are popping up that do no alcohol, mojitos, no alcohol, everything. They're just completely dry bars. They pop mocktails exactly everywhere. And because people, their young generation, realizing that we've been getting ourselves poisoned with all this food. And so they're trying to flip the script. And that's what's happening. You see this trend over and over and over. Fascinating. So I think we're running out of time, although <laughs> I have a lot more questions I want to ask you, but maybe for another time. But can we close out? Are you open to doing a little speed round? Sure. Always open to it. Okay. First subscription you ever had? Netflix, actually. Your favorite subscription other than yours today? A company called privacy.com. It's a company where you can put your credit card and it connects to, you can write and create as many credit cards you want digitally so nobody steals your data. And if you ever want to cancel, you just cancel. <laughs> Awesome. The best health insight that you gained from your own use of NutriSense? Got it. Specifically, the order of the meal makes a big difference. So I can eat the exact same three ingredients, but if I eat the protein or the fat before I eat the carb, actually has a dramatic impact of improvement on my health. And this is across everyone, by the way. It doesn't matter if you're woman, man, ethnicity, it helps everyone. So the fat or protein first, same exact meal. One thing you wish you'd known about subscriptions when you launched your company? It's specifically the part we talked about that we should be feel comfortable letting some people go. The amount of times we spend trying to please those people and we call them a lot of times squeakiest wheel, that no matter what, they would just complain, complain. We just go and try to fix things. We spend hundreds of hours trying to build products for them, make them happy, and they were never going to stay. That's a part that we made a crucial mistake on. Dan, thank you so much for being here. It was a real pleasure to have you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Dan Zavarotny co-founder and COO of NutriSense, the metabolic health company. For more about Dan, go to NutriSense.io. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Dan, go to RobbieKilmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Dan and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast, and we appreciate each one. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.